0: Good morning, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Kitty Block, President and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States, or HSUS. First woman to serve as CEO of HSUS in its nearly 70-year history. Block and attorney is also CEO of Humane Society International, the global division of HSUS, and has worked for HSUS for almost 30 years. HSUS is considered by many to be the country's largest animal protection organization, with the vast resources to match. In 2018, Block took over the leadership of HSUS as acting CEO after the organization had been rocked by a sexual harassment scandal involving her predecessor. She faced challenges of plenty. We'll discuss how she navigated those challenges, how she views the current status of HSUS, what she sees when she looks ahead, both at the organization and at the broader animal welfare landscape, and more, including your calls and emails. When I want to speak with Kitty. In a few moments here, on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll speak briefly with Alicia Duval, president of Dare, which in this case is an acronym for Dachshund Adoption Rescue and Education. This Saturday, November sixth, Tampa-based Dare is holding Doxa Palooza, its biggest fundraiser of the year, happening in Lakeland and featuring such activities as the Parade of Fosters, costume contest, and the all-important wiener races. We'll hear more about Doxa Palooza later. In today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss the Humane Society of the U.S. with Kitty Block, who leads that sprawling organization. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813 239 9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813 433 0885. This is Kitty Block on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Kitty.
1: Good morning, and thank you for having me today.
0: Thank you for joining on Talking Animals. And uh, so you've been with, as I noted uh, in the introduction with HSUS for nearly 30 years and worked in this field prior to joining HSUS. So this suggests a lifelong devotion to animals. When was the first time you remember doing something to protect or help an animal?
1: Well, that's a, a great question. So just so everyone knows, I started when at AAPIS US about five years old. So-
0: <laughs> okay. 95. Oh, good. I get, yeah, I, I should have, I should have <laughs> clarified that. That should have been my opening <laughs> statement. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Just for the record. <laughs> um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household where my parents, um, especially my mom, was an animal activist. And she was the first animal activist I, I ever got to meet. And um, so it was part of my, it was, part, I, I like to say it's part of my DNA. And, uh, you know, she was the first one who taught me it wasn't enough just to, you know, love our our, our dogs or our adopted cats and our rescue dogs and birds that we take care of it. She, she saw this as a bigger calling. And I was, you know, right there along side by side with her. And she was She was the one who taught me you know, you got to get off the sidelines and really take a stand for animals. And so, but my, my, First, where it was not just you know trailing after my mother and loving everything she was doing. I remember um, when I was in about second grade, we were had a field trip and uh, we went to Ringling. Um, I grew up in in New England, Boston mm. area, and um, I was excited to see the elephants. No one had ever really talked to me about circuses before. It wasn't something my mother had introduced to me as an issue, and I had never been. And uh, you know, when I got there, I I remember seeing the elephants and you know i i was excited to see them and then i saw them in in that setting and it just felt awful it didn't feel right and i remember looking at the you know faces of my my classmates, which is, I don't know, for me anyway, the last thing I wanted to do at that age was feel different yeah. than my friends. stand out. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and they were, you know, they were enjoying it. And I remember telling my teacher that I wanted to go home. I didn't like it. And she said no. And then I finally told her I didn't feel well. And she called my mom and my mom picked me up. And then I remembered after that really expanding what the issues were and and really knowing, learning that there was so much more out there, so much more in, you know, institutionalized cruelty and, and more things we could do.
0: So that really, uh, thanks to your mom being an activist, it really gave you sort of a, a precocious upbringing in that regard.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, I think it was something that really, actually was a, a really bonding part of our family and I I was okay being a bit different with my friends, which I always, you know, tried to bring them along. But, you know, where I grew up, I, I, I wasn't asked to babysit, but I was asked to take care of everybody's dog and cat in the neighborhood when people were traveling or anything like that. But, uh It definitely gave me a start, and it gave me such an incredible base of understanding and and compassion that um, I'm very lucky. And I know a lot of people who come to the movement don't have that foundation. And and in some ways, I really even respect that more because they came to it on their own.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting having done the show quite a few years now and talked to a number of people in rescue and welfare and various other aspects. I mean, it seems to kind of divide along two lines. One is that People who maybe not didn't have a mom as an activist, I think that you might be the first I've spoken to that that has that. But either animals were super important, there were animals throughout the house, and and that was kind of a a basic theme. Or, conversely, animals weren't allowed in the house. And then some, not surprisingly, these people then went on to become super involved with animals uh, in their adulthood and and in their careers in most cases. So... um, interesting the way people react very
1: interesting yeah i've often i've often thought of something like a you know what what is a you know the epiphany that people have and and some people do have a moment others you know you're you're right you just grew up with them in your house or you grew up without them and and knew there was something missing but um it is i think it's fascinating to hear what it you know what it was that brought people to this place and and once you're in this place, there's no going back because you understand the importance of, of standing up and doing what, everything you can.
0: So with that in mind, Kitty, so was it just natural then, growing up where you did and with a mom who was indeed an animal activist, that you would just kind of follow suit as you reached adulthood and beyond?
1: It was something I I knew I was going to do. Um, as, as I got older, you know, I, with my mom it was a lot of, you know, the rescuing stuff and volunteering at shelters. But it was some lobbying, um, you know, versions of the Animal Welfare Act uh, Mm. and calling members of Congress, you know, the old clunky phones. Um, And uh, so just getting excited about the power of that. Yeah. And for me... I wanted to be a lawyer, and I wanted to be a lawyer for animals. That was something that I thought I could bring to it in a different way. And so, yeah, went to went to law school. Um, my first uh, my first position out of law school was actually at PETA for a couple years. Yeah, and then to HSUS. Yeah.
0: So really, I mean, it's just so interesting because this is so, sounds like such a proscribed path that here's what I'm gonna do because I kind of influenced by my mom and I like the work and it's satisfying already and it's, it's making me a little different from my friends but not too freakishly different and then I'm getting satisfaction from it and then I'm thinking hey a good a good way to kind of keep doing this and do it more effectively is to go to law school I mean it's really like a, a path that that you just saw a vision for it like early on and just carried it out I yeah I,
1: I believe I did I I wouldn't have forecast all the twists and turns that it's taken. I don't think anyone really can when they look at their, you know, their long career. But I, I did know that I was going to follow my, my passion in this. I felt that I, again, because of my upbringing, because of what I was exposed to, I felt I could really bring something, you know, more or, or something such a strong commitment that i knew that i would i would stick with it even in the hard times because to me this really was the path forward yeah and the only path forward
0: but it also sounds like you kind of knew intuitively like i already have a really strong grounding in this because i did this kind of growing up again because of my mom's tutelage in, in many respects but if i can fortify this with also becoming a lawyer so much the better
1: Absolutely. Um I I, I didn't have the, the, the sort of the science, the biology background and I knew that was a way to help animals. But for me I was drawn to the law and yeah. and the ability to affect change and argue uh for you know the the defenseless.
0: Yeah. So it was your first job, official job in working with animals those initial couple of years at PETA? Uh
1: yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. But even before that, um when I was in college, you know, working, starting animal, you know, college group, uh, same thing in, in law school, Yeah, um, you know, starting a, an animal protection group, getting in speakers, and being in D.C., that was in large part why I came to D.C., because I knew this is where, you um, know, it all happens when if, if you're focused on, on trying to, to impact yeah.
0: law. When you did land at PETA, what was your specific job or role there initially?
1: So... When I when I first got to Peta, there really wasn't any um, lawyers there. It was it was in the early days. It was in 1990, wow. and um, so what I I was there for a bit of time, but then I what I transitioned to work for um, and I was. Lucky enough, um, one of the PETA's outside counsel, Phil Hirshkopf, um, who you may may or may not know the name, uh, but he uh, is a brilliant First Amendment attorney, and he actually argued Loving versus Virginia, the seminal Supreme Court case, uh, which which was uh, an interracial marriage, and he was on the side of rights wow. and. and dropped down that ban in Virginia. So I, I learned so much from him, and, and what I focused on a lot at that time were First Amendment cases, so being able to speak out and, and fight against, you know, suits of defamation and other other things like that. So that was wonderful.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a, like a, a super solid and, and kind of textured grounding that then you kind of took on to the next thing, which presumably was starting to work at HSUS?
1: Yes. Uh, that was in '92, and I was part of when HSUS formed uh, an investigations division. It was going to be the first in the organization, and I was a legal investigator. So I did the work um, around how you would conduct an investigation. What what are what do you need to to make sure that you're doing? Um, but it was it was exciting. Um, yeah. it was in a really exciting time when this was this was starting to move forward and we worked on so many
0: incredible cases and in those first few years was it just this is kind of realizing everything i've envisioned and worked for and went to law school for and then spent that time in the law office and you just feel like it's now it's all being realized and it's it's pretty much exactly what i was hoping it would be
1: it it pretty much was. I mean, it was in some ways it was it was harder than than I had realized it was gonna be, but I think that's anyone who has sort of a vision of what this can look like and what you can do. And I yeah. hadn't realized all the setbacks that can happen. And of course when you have a victory, you gotta defend it. You know, I worked on the tuna dolphin case for years and years and years and we you know, you make your success and then and then there's a suit against it. And so, you know, realizing that it's not over. Just because you are able to have a victory here, you don't get to move on if it's such an important victory. You have to stay and defend it, and what that means with your other work. And so that was that was something that I really hadn't expected. But um, what the other benefit was is being with other people who who cared about animals, who I mean, this was so important to them, and and that was nice. You know, finding a community of 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 people who this mattered.
0: Yeah. And when you said a moment ago that when I asked you about like kind of realizing your vision and all the hard work and the going to law school and the spending the time in the law, the amazing office of that amazing attorney, but you said, yeah, it was those things, but it was harder work than I expected. So was it the actual efforts and, and day-to-day work or was it emotionally harder than you expected?
1: It, it, well, probably a little bit of both. I mean, it was emotionally harder, um, because you feel the losses so acutely. Yeah. Um, And it's also, you know, when you think, when you're you're young and you think you're going to work for animals and you can't wait, you also don't think about, it's really a people movement. And you've got to learn to work with people and influence people. I know that sounds probably like, duh, for everyone. But when you're young, you don't think about that. You think, I'm just going to get in there and I'm going to do the work for animals. Well, this is about people and how do you how do you reach and influence people to make the humane choice and to change practices and traditions that they've you know, done for years and years and years. And that piece I hadn't really thought about as I, I, as you know, when I was younger. Obviously, as I got older, I realized that. But it was we're in a people movement yeah. Um, because that, that's how we protect the animals.
0: Yeah, no, idealism and zeal and passion and all those things are great. But if you don't figure out how to coordinate that and get people to sort of support your efforts, then you're just kind of a shrill person off on the side pretty much.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So this is
0: Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Kitty Block, President and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States, where she's worked for nearly 30 years, starting at five years old. An Attorney Block is also CEO of Humane Society International, the global division of HSUS. If you'd like to ask Kitty a question about HSUS, their work, their campaigns, other aspects of the organization, or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email DJ at WMNF.org, or text 813 433 Zero eight eight five. so kitty as i alluded to uh, in the introduction about three years or so ago the humane society of the united states was rocked by a sexual harassment scandal focused on then ceo wayne Pacelli. among things that happened in the early days of this period is that you were named acting ceo so now this question could possibly sound insulting which is not my intention and i've already gotten in trouble for the age thing but why do you think they approached you about stepping into the ce role at that pivotal moment well
1: it, i mean it's It's a good question. I I don't know what was in their minds, but I know what they wanted to accomplish and what they wanted to do was do what they could to write the organization. Yeah. Um, They wanted someone that was dedicated, clearly dedicated to the organization that had been tried and true and vetted and and had withstood um, a lot. Of change and always made it better. I I don't know if it was aware in your notes, but um, or history of me. But I actually brought uh, a sex harassment case in nineteen oh goodness nineteen ninety five. And so I I worked through that because it was important to me that our organization be as strong as it can. And and these things that happen are terrible, debilitating. It hurts. It's not just the individuals who are involved, but hurts the organization and it hurts our movement. So these things I take really seriously. And so again, I don't, I, I can't say what, what their exact thinking was, but I know what they wanted. And they wanted to make sure that this organization was able to push through this time, be sustainable and continue to grow.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the thing. A scandal, that big and located kind of at the top of a sprawling organization that has long been pretty protective of its reputation and its considerable fundraising prowess, really had the potential to do severe long-term damage. So I'm sure they were super concerned that whoever they had step into that, and you obviously in this case were who they selected, would really be able to hang in there, fend this off, and navigate the organization through what were obviously super turbulent uh, waters. Um, can you walk me through just a few key beats of the story uh, just like how mixed were your feelings given again your own history that you just alluded to and just the gravity of the situation uh, to be sort of then in charge at least as acting CEO initially uh, over the organization
1: right. well not that I remember the date <laughs> of February 2nd I know the exact moment the exact time I I'm was, sure. Uh, I was leaving. I was visiting my mom as this was all coming out in the, you know, playing out in the press. Yeah. And uh, my mom was devastated. I was devastated, obviously. And and I remember I was uh, at Logan, and um, I got a call uh, from our former board chair, and I just, uh, you know, walked right past my gate and, you know, sort of hung up the phone and was like, "Where am I standing?" You know, it was one of these moments. So. Yeah. But but for me, I mean it it was a horrible, it was a horrible. Challenging time, but there wasn't an option of failure. This organization, the family of our organization, does such incredible work, and it is—it is. It is there's, there's no room for not getting this right in continuing to build this organization. And what I have said time and time again: I, those who knew Wayne, obviously uh, he was perceived as a very charismatic person, and uh, people really sort of um, gravitated towards him, and and all of that. But mm-hmm. one individual does not make a movement, does not make an organization. And there are so many people in in Humane Society International, HS Humane Society of the US, HSLF, our family of organizations that do such incredible work that it was never about one person. And so for me that's really one of the main things I have tried to bring to this organ you know, to, to sort of this role and the importance of it. It's never one person, and if yeah. it's one person, we're not doing our job for the animals. It is about the work and the commitment and the strength and the sustainability of an organization and all of the individuals who make up that organization. So it's been really exciting to be able to see people grow in their roles, feel empowered in their roles, and doing work that that we didn't do in the past.
0: Yeah, it sounded like for a time there it, it, it was centered on Wayne, but I mean it was deeper than that, and in some ways, and especially in terms of the way. The board responded to the inquiry and some other things. So I just can only imagine, like, the just day-to-day challenges that you were contending with and just trying to keep moving forward and getting towards the uh, the resolution of this that was going to put this kind of aside and behind HSUS, which is, was obviously no small task. So amidst all this darkness, when did you start to see some light? Like, what were the first signs that you saw that HSUS was indeed going to survive this going to move past this and going to be okay
1: well i'm i'm very very happy to say that it never slowed for the animal work i mean everyone is so committed that they kept doing the work despite all the all of the things that were happening around us and so that i'm incredibly proud of
2: yeah
1: but we went to work immediately on improving the culture we wanted everyone to feel safe And everyone to feel that to make this a speak out and a speak up culture and did so much work around that. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to even, we don't, you're not enough time in your show to talk about all the improvements that we made from the, from the very top going through the board. The board went through, um, an incredible amount of governance work, really great work. We have a strong, incredible board, um, from the staff to the engagement to the, to ensuring look I, I, you never can you never can stop 100% a bad actor from yeah. from getting in anywhere but it's about what you do um once that happens and what the steps you take to make sure that once they you know that person is a bad actor, they are identified quickly and out. Yeah. And so that is really so much of the work that we've done and the changes and it's just been it's just been
0: amazing. So now here we are in the last couple of months of twenty twenty one. How would you assess the the kind of state generally of HSUS as we reach kind of the cusp of a, a new year?
1: It's incredibly strong. Um it is the work we're doing is is, is so impressive. Our our strategic priorities. We are we are hitting our milestones. We are fundraising is good, um, and that continues to be something that is you know really important and sustainable. We're focused in a way we weren't in the past. Um, I think it's very very important that what we commit ourselves to that it, we are uniquely qualified to do it. And where there are areas where. Well, we're, we're not the best in space. We should, we should help the other organizations um, with that. And so one of the part of our strategic plan and one of our many pillars is it's not just about doing the work that we are uniquely qualified to do for animals, but it's how do we help the capacity of the animal protection movement. It's something that we take really seriously. And that is so important. This is there's so much to do. Um, And I think I really learned this when I was in the international side building HSI. It's a big world out there. Um, There's so much to do for animals, and there's not a lot of of organizations that are able to do this work. So as much as you can help build the capacity of these other organizations, that is so important. So it's not just about what, what HSUS does or HSI or HSLS. It's about what we can also do to help the movement grow and build that capacity.
0: Yeah. And so when you look ahead, let's say five years at both HSUS and the broader animal welfare landscape. What do you see? What are are the kind of uh, encouraging signs and what are the sort of the, as you look out a little bit, what are the big challenges that even working with other organizations, but primarily HSUS's mission, what are the things that are really important as you move over those next four or five years?
1: Sure. I want to point one, one really big challenge that I think is, is looming and again, challenges come i think this circles back to something i said like once you get some you know a great measure passed you have to defend it because it's going to obviously impact a lot of industry that that is abusive to animals and so top 12 which is we got passed in 2018 um obviously working with a coalition of a number of great animal groups uh to get the strongest measure in california for for farmed animals Mm -hmm. so it is so strong on anti confinement, for, for egg laying hens, of course, and 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 pigs out of crates, veal calves out of these cages—all of this so important, so far reaching, but it's under attack in a really big way. And it comes into effect um, in January, so the pork industry is really pulling out all the stops. To, to go after it as much as possible in the court um, and as we continue to, to be successful in the courts then they turn to Congress and so there is something called the eat act uh, which was introduced that basically would prohibit states from passing measures that um, talk about how products animal products or or, or conditions or AG products um, the can't, states can't ban the sale of these. So, for instance, because California will, you know, in January will come into effect. Right now, I mean, in January, it will be able to ban any products that come in that that hens have been in these tiny battery cages or pork that has come in, you know, from animals that have been in these crates so tiny they can't turn around. The EAPS Act in Congress would prohibit, would ban that, would say it's unconstitutional. And it would not only impact farm animal provisions that we have gotten put in place state by state, it would actually also impact states where we've gotten bans on stores, pet stores, selling puppies from puppy mills or, you know, in California, the state where they ban fur. And so it's a real threat. Yeah, it's one that that the industry is nervous about and we are going to have to. And and I hope, you know, everyone joins in on this. It is so important that that each act does not pass Congress. And that Prop 12, that measure in California, goes into effect because it's going to have a major ripple effect across the entire country. And it's so important to support this. This is going to be a fight for the next for the next at least five years, mm. and it's one we're going to have to stay super vigilant on, and keep 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 up the pressure to to maintain these protections.
0: And this really sounds like something that that I think it's been clear to anybody who's been. Around animals and, and animal welfare and animal protection for any number of years, that that almost anything of any uh, strength or value comes down to legislation. And it sounds like, even though there is a good legislation, there was good legislation in place. This this new thing that you're describing, I mean, I don't even get how th- this could declare unconstitutional to ban products. Uh, to discuss this, what I mean, how did how does that how did that even get proposed, or how did it get far enough for that's, uh, like a looming threat?
1: So it's it's not it's not new. Um, when we started doing all the work on the you know, banning uh, battery cages for for egg laying hens, um, there was something called the King Amendment. I don't know if you remember from them, from the days of uh, Congress,
2: okay. but it was
1: always saying that it's you know unconstitutional to have. Uh, to ban the free flow of, of goods and the sales ban. That's, that's sort of the argument. Okay. But, but, but what it actually is doing is just upending states' rights to, to undertake greater protections for animals. And so it's one that's so important that, that we maintain. But it's not just legislation that's key; it's corporate work. Yeah, um, getting corporations to make these commitments, and a lot of times corporations lead, and and then Congress follows when there's a big enough, you know, the tipping point where the industry is already like, "All right, we're already here. We agree to go cage free. We agree to these measures." So we do a lot of work um, with with uh, corporations in the fur in the situation with fur designers, designers, the the, the biggest fashion houses are not just stepping away from fur. Like, they are running away from fur. And this is so exciting, and we're, this is unprecedented time that we're seeing with fur. Yeah. So it is really, there's so many things that are exciting, and there's so many things that we still have to defend, and, and we can't lose sight of that.
0: For sure. So what are people listening? I mean, it sounds like on the legislative and corporate level, that's where these things can be most effectively fought or defended. But what can people do in terms of, Listeners and others that uh, want to have their voice heard or help support some kind of effort uh, and, and just show a show of numbers or strength, uh, if nothing else.
1: Well, I appreciate you asking that question. Everyone can, can make a difference. Um, if, if you go to our website, uh, HumaneSociety.org, there are ways to volunteer. There are ways to take action. We can direct you to um, who to contact, uh, your choices about what you buy. Um, what you, what you, what you wear, all of these things have an impact and, and we are happy to, to let people know know, how they best can, can take action and, and help on these such important issues. So welcome anybody who is interested and, and wants to engage, um, it's it's really incredibly important, rewarding work, and I'm I'm sure your 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 listeners obviously know uh, how important this is as you have helped lead this uh, for a while now.
0: Yeah, well, and and speaking of that, by the way, I should just mention. Uh, just pops into my head that uh, upon seeing that you were going to be a <coughs> guest on the show, Don Goldstein, who's been our longtime Greyhound correspondent on the show, posted a wonderful photo of the two of you together, surrounded by yes on thirteen. Signs, thirteen being the amendment to end greyhound racing in Florida. So, it was just kind of a nice picture to see, but also nice to think think about the victories that uh, that you know are sometimes all the more important when you're struggling with some other battle. So,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: And speaking of that, or speaking of at least dogs, how much does your dog Lily shape your thinking, (laughs) your day to day thinking? I mean, it's certainly super prominent in some photos, as as uh, she should be. But, uh, but I would think someone with your kind of history and, and having been involved with animals and, and protecting them and looking after them since uh, childhood, basically, with your mom's influence, I would think there's some, some element of, all kidding aside, of, of Lily maybe uh, having some impact on just some of your, your overall thinking on policy or pieces of legislation or just anything else that might happen in the course of a day.
1: Of course she does. She has my heart. She has my heart. And, and with your heart goes your head and everything else. Um, she is an amazing dog and, um, she is, uh, you know, she is a street dog rescue from Trinidad and Tobago when our main Society international did some work there and she was part of a culture case. Um, I, you know, every day with her is, I feel lucky to be with her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she is, she is, she is, I have a one, one daughter, uh, but I actually have, well, I have more than that because of Lily and my, my two cats, but, uh, you know, they, they, really spent a lot of time growing up together. And yeah. so she said, I'm an only child, not really. And I said, you're right, not really. <laughs> and um, it's just, we have a wonderful, uh, you know, dogs in the workplace policy. And I just, you know, talk about 2018, uh, that, that, that year, which, you know, I always joke that the best part about 2019 just meant 2018 was over. Mm. Um, having dogs in our office, Oh, made such a difference. Yeah. You know, it was hard on staff, and people would come talk to me and couldn't really talk. Um, But then they would sit on the floor with Lily and Pat Lily, uh, and then conversations would flow. And I think it just helped heal the soul of all of us because we're, you know, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is what we're committed to. And it was just, it's great.
0: Yeah. And totally, really consistent with just uh, the people and the causes and their efforts and uh, what's important to them to be able to day-to-day have them right there in the office probably is critical. It is. So, Katie, I just feel like we should at least briefly touch on this because it's come up a few times, but without really uh, exploring it or even defining it much. Can you just talk for a second about what the chief concerns are of Humane Society International?
1: So, Humane Society International is is working on the same priorities as as we do at HSUS. Obviously, it's a little bit different in every country, um, but the there's really there's really no concerns. I mean, it's just about yeah, building that capacity because we are in a number of countries, but you can't be in all of them. And how do you continue to, to grow the ethos and help fledgling organizations? And that's really. I mean, that's really, you know, the main concern, but it is, the landscape is changing, changing everywhere. And countries that, you know, when I was first involved in this movement would never even consider, um, you know, measures for for animals are are changing. You know, for instance, China, there is a growing population of animal protectionists, and we've worked with them to, to try to shut down the dog meat trade there. Really being led by by these local organizations. That's so empowering. That's so exciting to see. And so, how can we help build that? And and again, we're seeing this all over the world. And uh, it's just really important to make sure that we can help that con- to continue to grow and and continue to, to to spread the word.
0: Yeah. So, to what extent? I mean, I guess you were. You were leading uh, Humane Society International before you officially were named CEO of, of HSUS. So, so you then had obviously both among your. I mean, it's a big, big portfolio. Is there some aspect that you think about your work day to day that people should understand? that maybe some of us don't just because there's just a huge number of things that you're looking after day to day and, and uh, people might not even be able to imagine just what that's like just because of the size of the organization, number one, and the, and the pretty sprawling portfolio that you maintain, number two?
1: Uh, look, it, it's a great question. And um, the the answer is you make sure you work with good people who get the work done. You can't do it all. I mean, I, I you know, I described... When this all happened, I think it was like, so it was four years ago, um, so 52, 53. Um, And just the idea that you can stretch and grow in your 50s in ways that you didn't think you could. um, It just, there's always more. You always have more capacity when it's something that you're passionate about. But what I learned along the way is, Make sure you expand the the roles out and the work and empower people to be strong in little Do not be a controlling leader in the sense that other voices don't matter or other voices are not as good as yours. There are so many smart people in this movement. And make sure they have a seat at the table and at my organization, which they do. I don't run it all. I rely on some really incredible people to run it with me. And yeah. that is again the sustainability and the measure of success of any organization.
0: As part of that, what would you say is your absolute favorite part of the job day to day?
1: I love what I do. And even a hard day is is a day I wouldn't spend any other way. This is this is what I care about. This is yeah. this has been my life. And to know that Um, that I'm making a difference over my lifetime of this issue, I can't think of a greater reward.
0: Yeah. So there's nothing that stands out. It's just just the job generally that, uh, and again, which in some ways if someone else was saying that, I'd say, well... Maybe this is too much, like "who's your favorite kid" kind of question, but I think <laughs> as as we've covered, uh, and first of all, you probably only have one favorite kid in your case, regardless. <laughs> but uh, but also, as we just you know have c- kind of covered, I mean, you were on such a clear path from really from childhood to, I mean, if you had known about what it would be like to lead HSUS when you were a little kid and going to that horse wringing circus or whatever, you probably would have said, "Well, this is this is what I want to do." X amount of years later. So the fact that you say just the job itself is your favorite part of the job, I think we're going to have to give you a pass on this.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate it, and and it is it is the case. I am in a position that I could have only dreamt about and did only dream about as, as a kid, so I am um, I'm pretty lucky.
0: All right, so here's where we go a little sideways. What, is there a part of the job that you, if you had to be super honest would say, okay, I, it's not my favorite. I, I I, won't say I dislike it just because that's not politic, but I would just say it's not my favorite part of what my overall responsibilities are.
1: When, you know, when we lose an issue, um just trying to understand how we lost it and why and how we can change it the next time. Because I truly believe that people, when I say people broadly, they care about animals. And when you make the connection for them and you show how this could be better for animals and what that really means, and if you miss that mark, then that hurts. That's hard. Yeah. Because it's 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 something we need to be able to do, and we just need to figure it out. You know what is right next time, and so you know that that is hard. Um, but it is you know it's, this organization is so good and so strong and so filled with so many smart people. Yeah. Who keep getting working at it until we get it
0: right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. In terms of being full of really good, smart people, I mean, it is a big organization. But also, one of the things as I was watching close, closely and over th- the years, there'd be somebody that would be like a hotshot activist in, in this uh, part of the country and uh, working for whatever their thing was, organization. The next thing I turn around, they're working for HSUS or there'd be some important organization. In some cases, this didn't happen, obviously, a lot, but it did happen sometimes. Next thing you know, HSUS acquires that organization and, of course, that leader. So it seems like it's just been built up and fortified in one way or another with really some of the best people and some best activists and best leaders that, that, that have been out there. Well,
1: yes. And there's always still more to do. And so much of what we've done in these last few years is making sure that we are retaining the best talent and attracting the talent. And that all starts with making sure that your employees feel respected, uh, safe. And again, that goes back to a lot of the culture work we did. It's yeah. one thing to get somebody in the door, but you want to make sure they stay because it's the best place to be and the best place to do good work for animals.
0: Yeah, yeah. And on a sort of different note, um, you know, there was this thing in the news not too just fairly recently about the 30-some-odd cats uh, saved from this uh, mm-hmm. this home in Muncie where there was like, I guess, sort of a cat hoarding situation. Um, mm-hmm. So why is that kind of action important for HSUS to undertake to, to kind of intervene in that situation? And and why also is the organization uniquely equipped to do so? That's a great
1: question. I know I said that a couple of times during this interview, but they're all really good.
0: Okay, flattery will get you everywhere, Kitty. I know. I know what you're up to. Okay, excellent.
1: Excellent. Um, so as I said, you know we take on the big fights that we are uniquely qualified to do. So going after fur and factory farming and puppy mills and the dog meat trade and cosmetic testing on animals. This is long-term policy work. This is getting corporations to change their practices, is getting laws passed, which you know doesn't happen overnight. We need to also take care of animals now. And so that really is focus on animals in disaster situations, cruelty situations where we have the capacity and, and others don't. And so how do we fortify their ability to rescue animals now, animals that are now in crisis? And so Muncie is a great example. Um, this, this hoarding case had been going on as I was there and talking with, with, uh, officers and others for 10 years. And that house that I walked into that I can still remember how it smells mm. and looks. Yeah. Um, sadly, um, there's 10 years of, of animals living in their own cells there. And so the thing is they didn't have the capacity. The local, the local, um, organization there, animal control amazing group and we're working with now to help them you know give them some of the resources they need to develop. So incredible. they couldn't take this on. They're already they're not just at capacity, they are over capacity. And so we have this ability to come in. We have trained professionals, we worked with the law enforcement and they said they had not seen uh, uh, a, an outfit like this come in. team comes in, works with them, collects the evidence, gets the animals out, gets them triage, we have a mobile clinic where they, we can work on the animals right there. Um, it's, it's really about going to that, that comment about you know, helping animals now, not just the long-term policy work, but we are uniquely able to, do, to help in these situations where, where others don't have that capacity. So it's really building that capacity and working with them. And so it is important that our organization do this, not just in the U.S., but on a global scale. And that's really one of our priorities is building that ability that we can come in and do this work. We can work with different governments and we can... Um, work with those municipalities who want to be able to do something for animals, but just didn't have the ability or the training or the resources
0: to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Resources are so, so important for so many of these things and, and HSUS is, is uh, unique in that way. So, uh, well, that might be the perfect place at which to, uh, to leave us because we have, I think, just about reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Kitty Block, president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States and also uh, CEO of Humane Society International, the website, as she mentioned earlier to find out how you can get involved and help out on some of these threats and things that are happening legislatively and otherwise is HumaneSociety.org. So, Kitty, thank you so much for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. I enjoyed speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much. Have a wonderful
0: day. You too. Yeah, in a moment, I'll speak with Alicia Duval about Doxapalooza, the huge event by for, and about dachshunds and their humans taking place this Saturday, November 6th in Lakeland from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., We'll hear more about Doxapalooza in a moment. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece I selected with the conversation in mind I'll have in a moment with Alicia. This piece is about dachshunds. Although, as you quickly hear, this comic doesn't pronounce it that way. This is Rocky Dale Davis with a bit called Killer Dachshunds. My pronunciation, not his. In today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF.
3: lady got murdered by a wild pack of Dachshunds. Like, literally. Like, Dachshunds are wiener dogs, by the way. Wiener dogs. <laughs> It's pronounced dash I looked it up, so don't fact check that. I don't know if you're laughing at the joke or me. I'm not cool with it either way. You need to look up that. Some people say dish but I say dash so. But she died from packing dash I seriously, I wanna know the number. Like, I, that's like, that's like number. Like, I'm, I'm gonna say like 1.5 million hoons attacked her. At one point in time. Because that's like, sir, like, it's like asking, like how, like how many kindergartners could you beat up? Like, that's like the question, it's like, like a pack of dashers. and like, what is she thinking too? Like, like if you walk, and here's like an old lady walk, they always have a little stick with them and everything. You know, they got their little stick, and she's like, oh, look at these little pack of dashers right here. Look at them coming. And it's she's like, oh, they're getting close. Oh, they look really mad right now. And they start like biting her ankles. Like, what point do you go down? The dashers are like, we got her, we got her, like. Where do these dashoons beat at? We need to get these dashoons off the street. That's what I'm focused on for 2018. <laughs> Seriously though, man, like it's like, what? How did that happen? Like at what point, look, if I ever die from a wild pack of dashoons eating me up, y'all better lie, you better lie about it. <laughs> Don't tell my mom a pack of dachshunds ate me up. Do not tell her, cause she'll disown me. She doesn't know. There's no way. She'll be like, "Oh, Mrs. Miss, Miss Davis, your son Rocky died from a pack of dogs." She'll be like, oh, "We need to get rid of pit bulls. Oh my god!" <laughs> and they'll be like, "Now it's the pack of dachshunds, little winter dogs." mom will be like, "I didn't even love him, anyways. I never loved him." <laughs>
0: That was Rocky Dale Davis in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called "Killer Dachshins," taken from an appearance at the Comedy Works. Now it's time to speak with Alicia Duval about Doxa Palooza, taking place this Saturday, November sixth, in Lakeland, what we'll promises to be a fun-filled day for numerous dachshins and their human companions. Here's Alicia Duval on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Alicia.
4: Good morning.
0: How are you? Great. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Let's start with a brief overview of Dare. A little bit about your organization and its mission.
4: Their mission is to rehome unwanted dachshunds or dachshund mixes within the state of Florida. And we do that through foster homes, uh, rehab, rehabilitation. And then we actually uh, interview and screen all the applicants to make sure that we are making a true perfect fit between the dog and the person who's wanting to adopt them.
0: Cool. What are some of the best things about uh, living with a dachshund?
4: Oh, gosh. They, they are constant cuddle companions. Uh, they'll help keep you on your diet because they will steal any food that is not locked down <laughs> and okay. uh, definitely good warmers under the blankets. I've got five personal dachshunds wow. and I am never cold. I can assure you of that.
0: <laughs> well, that's good to know. So we'll ask a quick question, then we'll get on to Dr. Belus. But any quirks or other qualities about dachshunds that someone considering adopting uh, one of them should, should be aware of?
4: I truly believe that every dog has its own unique personality. Out of my five dachshunds, no dachshund is the same. I have one that absolutely loves my nieces and nephews, loves children. I have another one that is very scared of kids. So when they come over, she tends to go to her little crate and burrow under her blanket, and that's where she's happy. So that's a big reason that I'm a, a big supporter of rescue is because you get to learn about the dog's personality before you bring it into your home. So we really try to focus on that perfect fit. That's but great. I can tell you, I was raised with dachshunds. My whole family has had them. Uh, there's, we have a big family, and they are wonderful family pets.
0: Cool. All right, well, with that in mind, let's talk a little bit Doxa First, let's hit the basic details, especially when where and so on. So let's get into the date okay. and time and those kind of things for people listening.
4: Sure. Doxa is this Saturday, Saturday, November 6th. It is at the Sun and Vun. Fun and Fun Event Pavilion in Lakeland, Florida. And you can find out more information by visiting daretorescue.org. And um, we have a pretty full day packed, actually. So the event starts at 10 a.m. Then we go at 10.30, we move right on to our first blessing of the animals. Uh, We do a parade of available fosters and past fosters. At 11 o'clock, we do a costume contest. And there are two categories. There is store-bought and original. And I can tell you from, we've been doing this now, this is our 15th year, that the costume contest is really one of the highlights. You I'm People sure. really, really good with that. Um, right after the costume contest, we go into our Lick-A-Lot contest, which is one of the funniest contests you will ever lay eyes on. <laughs> it is a kissing contest. So our participants stand on stage with their dogs, we set the timer for 60 seconds, and the owner who gets the most licks on the mouth from their dog in those 60 seconds will win. Wow. And um, we have really cool t-shirts, and it says, I kissed a dog and I liked it. <laughs> so, okay, yeah. Yeah, we got some fun stuff. Um, we tone it down just a little bit after that funny contest. We do our Rainbow Bridge Tribute since we had to cancel Dr. Palooza last year due to COVID. Mm. This year, it'll probably take a little bit longer. We read the Rainbow Bridge tribute uh, poem, and then we list a roll call of all the pets that have been lost last year and this year uh, to honor their memory, because for everyone who's ever owned a pet, if you've already lost your very first pet, then you understand it's a heartache, and it's just a camaraderie, and it's a nice moment for everybody to kind of bond together. Yeah. Um, then we'll, we'll take it back up again after that. We want to be happy. We don't want to be sad all day, so we'll go right after that into our King and Queen uh, contest, which is... It's very simple. So you have to be there to participate. It is open to anyone, and the king and queen is the male and female dog who raises the most money. So okay. they bring in all the money they've raised by twelve o'clock, and then we do a coronation. Uh, we do another blessing of the animals, and well, let's get to the
0: let's dogs. get to the. We're almost out of time. I'm sorry, Alicia. Yeah, so let's get yeah. to the big grand finale because I think that's what a lot of people are excited about as, as much as love they love the other events too. But what's the final event of the day?
4: Wiener dog races. Yay! It's
0: always,
4: always the big draw. Awesome. Um, Florida Wiener Dog Derby runs the races for us. We typically um, cap out at 100 dogs. So oh, my goodness. Online re- yeah, our online registration actually closed uh, on Monday. Okay. But we will accept walk-ups. Okay. okay. Accept walk-ups until You can
0: still get walk-ups. in on this. Yeah.
4: Yes. Up until 12 o'clock is the last time that uh, okay. races registration will close. So it's uh, going to be a really good time. And Duncan, let me just say, There will be free beer and wine samples
0: going on. Okay, well, we can't talk about prices, even free stuff, but let me just one more time say daretorescue.org for more information and uh, to go over the schedule and any other details that you might not have had a chance to to write down as you heard them if you were driving around. So, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Talking Animals and and looking forward to another successful Doxa Palooza this Saturday. Thank
4: you so much. Have a great
0: day. You too. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Alright, coming up on WNF, the kicks back in with Jim Bannon, who ordinarily hosts Rustic New Soul Thursdays, 4 to 6 a.m., but is sitting in for Scott Elliott today, noon to 3, followed by Robin Hooper with another three hours of music, and then we just keep rolling along into our Latin programming tonight. Meanwhile, next week on Talking Animals, my guest will be Jose Sanchez, a naturalist trained in marine biology and an expert on the so-called friendly whales of the San Ignacio Lagoon in Baja, California. These are these whales where the moms give birth down there. And then, insta- counterintuitive, you've learned about animal moms and their babies they she they bring them up to the boat for you to get to know them and pet them rather than like super fierce and protective it's an amazing phenomenon we'll talk about that with jose next week on talking animals on WMNF tampa right now stay tuned for empire news headlines and then again jim bannon sitting in for scott today and uh, coming up just after the empire news headlines thanks so much talking animals on wmf